Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard of a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Welcome to the Morbid Tourism Podcast, where we talk about cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence, manipulative behavior, spousal abuse, and sexual content. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We always say that hindsight is twenty twenty. It's in our nature to look back when something happens and point out mistakes, kind of try to understand how things could have been so much better if we had just done one small thing differently. But in the moment, it's not easy. We all try to do what we think is right in the moment and just react. The case I'm going to talk about in the next two episodes is filled with moments like this. And it's a very frustrating case because of how differently things could have ended up. This case proves that lives can change based on snap decisions and judgments. Susan Cox grew up in a loving home in Puyallup, Washington. She was the third youngest daughter of Chuck and Judy Cox and was raised in the Mormon faith. In 2000, when Susan was 19, she attended a Mormon singles event in Tacoma. It was there that she would meet her future husband, Josh Powell, who was 24 at the time. Josh's upbringing wasn't quite as picture-perfect as Susan's. His parents had divorced, and his father became outspoken in his anti-Mormon views. Josh wasn't a strict Mormon, partly due to his father and his father's views, but Josh still attended the singles events in hopes of meeting a partner. Oddly enough, Josh had tried to date Susan's older sister, Mary, for a short time. He once even showed up at the Cox house and waited for her in the living room until Chuck Cox finally just kicked him out. Although Judy and Chuck Cox were kind of wary of Josh after his attempt to date Mary and him just sitting in their living room, Susan was head over heels and they knew that if they attempted to force her to stop seeing him, that it would just seal their bond even further. After about a year of dating, Susan and Josh were married on April 6, 2001 at a ceremony in the LDS temple in Lake Oswego. After they were married, the couple moved into an apartment together in Puyallup, close to Susan's parents. Susan worked as a cosmetologist, doing hair at a salon in a mall, and Josh worked selling and installing office furniture. Neither of them made very much money, and eventually they would have to move in with Josh's father, Steve. Cracks in the marriage started to form while the couple lived with Steve Powell. Steve liked to think he was smarter than everyone else, and he would go on long rants about the evils of the Mormon faith, even though Susan was still a very devout member. But it didn't stop there. Steve seemed to take a particular liking to his son's new wife and made inappropriate advances towards her. 
Steve kept a detailed diary and in it, he wrote about how he imagined him and Susan running away and starting a life together. He also had an extensive porn collection and included in it were photoshopped images of nude women with Susan's face. Even more disturbing were photos of Susan in compromising positions taken seemingly without Susan's knowledge. Steve even wrote love songs to Susan, hoping to woo her through music. But Steve's feelings towards Susan were anything but mutual. As time passed, Susan became more and more fed up with Steve's inappropriate advances. She was fully in love with Josh, and the fact that her father-in-law was trying to flirt with her or trying to tell her that he loved her, she was completely against it. And Susan didn't keep her thoughts about Steve between herself and Steve. She told Josh about his father's inappropriate comments and about how she did not like how it was going, but Josh just didn't seem to take them very seriously. He would talk to Steve about his behavior, but his father seemed to be able to convince Josh that it just wasn't a big deal, so nothing would change. By 2003, Susan had had enough of Steve's behavior, and the couple decided to try their luck in West Valley, Utah, not far from where two of Josh's sisters lived with their own families. West Valley is a suburb of Salt Lake City, which is basically the equivalent of Mecca for Mormons. The Salt Lake City area is full of beautiful, ornate Mormon temples and is also home to some really great ski resorts. The city of West Valley is located just southwest of Salt Lake City, and since incorporating in 1980, it's grown significantly. It's now the second biggest city in Utah, behind Salt Lake City itself. Susan knew that by living in this area, the family would have a built-in support system through their faith and through Josh's sisters and their family. She also knew that they would be far enough away from Steve to get a fair start like they deserved. After using most of their savings to move, the young couple was pretty low on funds, so they both immediately started looking for work. It just so happened that the same company hired them both, and they started working jobs at Fidelity Investments, with Susan working phones and Josh in IT. With both of them finally employed, they qualified for a mortgage and bought the house at 6254 West Sarah Circle. The single-story tract home sat at the end of a cul-de-sac and was relatively large, with five bedrooms and two and a half baths with a pretty big backyard too. So it was the perfect home for a young couple that was looking to grow their family. Things finally seemed to be falling into place for Susan and Josh. Although Susan took the role seriously and really worked hard at her new job, Josh lost interest after a short time and he was eventually laid off when Fidelity phased out his role. He tried his hand at being a realtor for a short time before again losing interest and pursuing a new career in computer programming. After years of career switching, he finally landed another job in IT. Throughout Josh's career switching, Susan was the sole provider. She was the one making sure that her and Josh had enough money to pay for the mortgage and pay for their other bills. But still, the couple tried to make it work and start their lives together, and eventually, they started a family. In 2005, their first son, Charlie, was born. 
Although Susan began having doubts about her marriage to Josh and how he would be able to provide for the growing family, in 2007, the couple welcomed their second son, Brayden. Susan was absolutely smitten with her two sons, and she wanted to give them everything that they desired, like every new mother does. Josh was a fairly good father when he wanted to be, but he seemed to often prioritize other interests over the needs of his two young sons. By the time Brayden was born, Josh's frugality had reached new heights, and he decided that the family should only have one car, even though both Josh and Susan worked in offices full-time, which weren't even close to each other. He decided that Susan could ride a bike to and from work, seven miles every day. Even if it was raining or freezing cold, Susan was expected to ride her bike to and from work instead of Josh working out a schedule or at least dropping her off and picking her up. Susan realized that her husband would never change and become the thoughtful, caring husband she thought he could be when she first married him. She urged him to go to counseling with her in an effort to repair the damage to their marriage. She would give him multiple deadlines, but again and again, those deadlines passed without any change. Eventually, Susan saw the writing on the wall that Josh would always be the way that he was, always be frugal, not be fully present, and so she began to make plans to divorce him. She spoke to a lawyer who advised her that before alerting Josh about her divorce plans, she should take inventory of all of the couple's assets. With a video camcorder in hand and Josh out of the house for a few hours, Susan went through the Salt Lake City home, showing the camera all of the items that the couple had acquired throughout the years and talked about the major ones. Although she knew divorce was imminent, she didn't discuss it with Josh But even though it wasn't discussed, Josh must have felt the growing distance between him and his wife. For him, the life that looked so perfect from the outside was closing in on him. If a divorce went through, he would likely lose custody of his two sons. Plus, he would lose the majority of his monthly income that Susan brought home. He had little to no support system in Salt Lake City. Even though his two sisters lived there, they seemed to be much closer with Susan. So he'd probably have to move back to Puyallup to live with his dad. He'd have to find a new job to support himself and really just start over. And if Josh had to move back to Puyallup, he knew that he would rarely be able to see his sons. On the morning of Sunday, December 6th in 2009, Susan went to Temple, which was very normal for her, accompanied by her sons, but without Josh, which was also pretty normal. Although Josh still considered himself Mormon most of the time, he had really been pulling away from the church over the last several years and only attended temple on rare occasions. Although there was a winter storm in the area and it was bitter cold outside, it was clear enough for Susan and the boys to join with some of their neighbors and walk to temple. But the storm wasn't over and was forecasted to continue overnight and into the next day. Susan and the boys came home after temple, and Susan went to work on a crochet blanket that she was making for her son, Brayden. Josh had volunteered to make breakfast for dinner that night, a rare treat where Josh took the initiative to actually do something nice for the family, and everyone in the family was looking forward to it. 
That afternoon, Susan invited her friend, Giovanna, over to help her untangle some yarn and just to kind of have a ladies' afternoon and chat. The pair sat on the couch in the living room and everything seemed pretty normal. Josh eventually made pancakes for dinner and the women sat on the couch to eat while they continued to tackle the yarn tangle situation. After dinner, at around 4.30 or 5 p.m., Susan said she didn't feel very well, so she went to bed. Susan had had an ear infection for several weeks, and Giovanna figured that she was just worn out after a long day, so she didn't really think much of it, and she left shortly thereafter. What happened that night after Giovanna left has been gone over and over by police, the Cox and Powell families, and countless others, but no one knows exactly what happened next. According to Josh, what happened next was that night he took the boys to go sledding at a hill near their home and then decided it would be really fun to go camping. Now, remember that it was December in the middle of Utah, Plus, add the fact that there was a large snowstorm that night, and it was Sunday, and Josh and Susan both had to work the next day. Nevertheless, Josh Powell maintained that the boys wanted to go camping so badly that he bent to their will, packed up the car, and at around midnight on Sunday night, made his way out into the Utah wilderness. Of some importance, he maintained that Susan stayed behind and did not accompany him and the boys on the camping trip. The next day was Monday, and that morning, the woman who ran the daycare that Charlie and Brayden attended, who was named Debbie Caldwell, noticed that the Powell boys hadn't been dropped off like usual. It wasn't super uncommon for them to be late, especially when Josh was in charge of getting them to daycare, But with the winter storm wreaking havoc on the streets, she began to worry that something had happened. She tried calling Susan's cell phone, her work phone, and even the house phone, but she got no answer. She then tried Josh's phone, and still, no answer. She took some of the older children to school like normal, and on her way back, she stopped by the Powell household to see if she could check on the boys and the family. She knocked on the front door, but the house seemed deserted. There was no sounds of children or anyone else inside. At this point, Debbie had a really sinking feeling in her gut that something was wrong. She tried calling Josh's work to see if he had showed up that morning, but they informed her that he had not. She then called the emergency contact that she had been given, Josh's sister Jennifer, and left a message on Jennifer's answering machine. At that point, Debbie had no real choice but to return back to her house and continue looking after the remaining children in her care, who had stayed in the van in front of the Powell house while she checked on it. Josh's sister Jennifer got the message a few minutes later, and along with Josh's mother, who also lived with Jennifer, they went over to the Powell residence, and they found it in the same state that Debbie had described, deserted and locked up. They too tried calling Susan and Josh, but they couldn't get through to anyone. So they took the next logical step and they called the police to report the situation. To the credit of the West Valley Police Department, they took the call very seriously and they responded to the Powell home within just a few minutes to attempt a welfare check on the house. If you listen to episode 13 about the case of Chris Watts, who murdered his wife and two children, you'll remember that in that case, police were able to knock and look through windows at the home, but they couldn't force their way inside to perform a welfare check. The difference, though, was that in the Watts case, 
Chris Watts, who owned the home, had been contacted and was on his way. And since he was confirmed to be okay, police had to wait for his permission to enter the home. At the Powell house, no one could get a hold of either Josh or Susan, so police were able to break a window in order to gain entry into the home and check to see if the family was inside. But instead of getting answers, there were more questions. Inside the home, police didn't find anyone, which was a relief initially and meant that something like carbon monoxide poisoning could be ruled out. But where was the family? Susan's purse was found in the bedroom, though her cell phone was missing. A stereo was on playing somewhat loud music and a box fan was pointed at a wet spot on the carpet in the living room. When they checked the garage, the family's town and country van, their only vehicle, was missing, though there was no tire tracks on the driveway, meaning that it had been gone for several hours. Word spread like wildfire about the missing family and friends of the Powells continued calling Josh's phone over and over, getting no answer every time. Finally, around 3 p.m., Susan's friend Giovanna was able to get through to him on his cell phone. When she asked him where they were, he answered simply driving around. When she asked about Susan and where she was, he acted clueless and said simply, she's at work. Josh told Giovanna that he had gotten confused and thought that it was Saturday night when he decided to take the boys camping, and he didn't realize that he would be missing work. After that call, no one was able to get a hold of Josh again for several hours. During that time, he called Susan's cell phone and left her a message, then took the van to a self-car wash and cleaned it thoroughly. Finally, at 6.40 p.m., Josh returned home with his two sons, where he was met by a West Valley police officer. The officer asked Josh to follow him to the police station with the boys to be questioned so that they could all find out where Susan was. Josh told the police that the previous night, he had taken the boys sledding at a nearby elementary school and, after returning to the house, decided to take them camping. He said that at the time he decided that, Susan was awake, although she had been laying down earlier in the evening after saying she didn't feel well. Josh said he packed up the car with a generator and firewood and headed out just after midnight with the boys. He said he drove to an area called Simpson Springs, which is about two hours southeast of their home. Throughout the interview, he maintained that he didn't know where Susan was and that she had stayed home. Although throughout the interview, Josh showed little to no concern that his wife was missing at all. Police were able to get consent from Josh to search the van, and what they found inside could be considered pretty damning evidence. Police recovered a circular saw, several knives, a shovel, and a newly opened box of latex gloves. They also found Susan's cell phone on the passenger seat of the van, meaning that when Josh had called it earlier and left a message for Susan, it was sitting just a few feet away from him. What police didn't find was also suspicious. There was no sign of any camping equipment besides an electric generator. There was no sleeping bags, no tents, no food, nothing that would suggest that Josh and the boys had just returned from a camping trip. Unfortunately, police did not feel that they had enough evidence to make an arrest and allowed Josh and the boys to return home with the van, but asked them to return to the police station the next day to continue the interview. 
To the surprise of practically no one, Josh was several hours late to his interview with police the next day. Unlike what would be expected of a panicked husband who was desperate to find his missing wife, Josh seemed to kind of dilly-dally all morning with zero sense of urgency, doing multiple loads of laundry while his sister Jennifer helped watch the boys. Finally, that afternoon, he showed up at the station to continue answering questions, leaving the boys with Jennifer at the house. While there, officers armed with search warrants went to the Powell house and began pulling boxes and boxes of things out of the house, including a piece of carpet where the box fans had been pointed. Near the front door of the house, they found several small drops of blood, which they photographed and swabbed for DNA testing. While police were going through the Powell home, Jennifer Powell brought Brayden and Charlie to a children's advocate center where they were both questioned about their camping trip and the whereabouts of their mother. While talking to a child advocate who was trained in questioning children without leading them, Charlie said that their mother had come camping with them, but that she stayed, quote, where the crystals are, end quote. After hearing this, the advocate reported what Charlie had said to the officers who were questioning Josh, and they told him that he was going to be detained. Although it's not clear exactly why, and hindsight tells us that this was the wrong decision, just a few minutes later, police told Josh that he was free to go, although he had to leave his phone and the van with the police officers and he could not return to his house. Josh could feel the world closing in on him. Police didn't believe his weak alibi and his children were talking about Susan being left out in the middle of nowhere. But for the time being, he was free. After leaving the police station, he took a cab to the Salt Lake City Airport and rented a car at about 10.30 p.m. Next week, I will continue with the story of the Powell family, which only gets more shocking from here. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Powell family home. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave a rating or review. Let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, the podcast Cold, and the book If I Can't Have You by Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris. 